real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. So welcome back, everyone. Nathan Ramos with you again. And today in studio, we have Dr. Sandy Jung with us. Dr. Jung is a psychology professor at McEwen University in Edmonton and is a registered forensic psychologist. She's an active researcher and as part of her psychology crime lab, she focuses on the risk and management of individuals who have perpetrated sexual assault, child sexual exploitation, and intimate partner violence. She's published over 50 papers, chapters, and reports, as well as a book on the management of sexual abusers. She collaborates with law enforcement, uh, forensic mental health, and other academic institutions in Canada and internationally. She teaches abnormal and forensic psychology and actively supervises honors and advanced research students, all of which I hope listen to this, and uh, is an assistant adjunct professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Alberta. So welcome, Dr. Jung. Great. Thank you. So uh, yeah, I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. Um, and as I was joking with you back forth in an email, everybody's talking about the Dahmer series on Netflix. So everybody's obsessed with that. But um, we're not here to analyze him. So but we'll get into some similar kind of topics. Um, but, you know, we kind of start at the beginning with most people. Uh, can you kind of tell us about yourself, uh, where you come from, how you got into this field, uh, everything in between? Okay. Wow, that's a huge uh, question. Um, <laughs> well, I'll start with where I'm, I'm from. I'm uh, born and raised in Vancouver. Um, so I went to UBC. And originally when I, when I went there, it was interesting because I really wanted to go into psychiatry. I knew I wanted to study, you know, abnormal behavior. I wanted to do something clinical at that time. But when I went to UBC in the psych department, they had, at the time, really a strong forensic program. There's only three people that were there, um, but these were huge names in the field. Um, what happened was uh, I got to work in a, a few of the labs. Um, one of them was uh, Dr. Robert Hare, and he's, um, for people who are really familiar with psychopathy or psychopaths, mm. you often think of, you know, Robert Hare because he created the, uh, the psychopathy checklist. What he ended up doing was that he created this list for us to evaluate whether a person can actually, you know, meet the criteria for, for being a psychopath. And one of the assignments he, he created for us to do was um, he sent off all of us to read one of the novels he assigned, about five novels, and all of them were on a serial killer. So it was, you know, um, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, you know, all the ones that we mm -hmm. kind of think about, you know, um, from way back when. One of them that I chose was one on Diane Downs because it was pretty rare that you see a female be a serial killer. And she, um, what she had done in that, in that particular scenario, she um, tried to kill three of her children. And one of them she did kill, but the other two she had severely damaged, right? So their head injuries, um, you know, sort of not ever really fully recovered from it. But we used the psychopathy checklist and we actually scored them on each of these, um, these serial killers. And so it really got me interested in kind of going, understanding why. Why are these individuals the way they are? Why are these people doing these things? Um, and what makes them different from everyone else? So it really kind of got me kind of going in that direction. What I wanted to do was I originally wanted to work with um, 
young offenders. So I decided to pursue more more studies. I went to, of all places, Thunder Bay. Very interesting place to live. The uh, booming metropolis. Uh, yeah, booming metropolis. Not the most diverse either. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, was a, I was a rarity there. I'm, I'm Chinese background. And so you can imagine going there, it's like very, very different um, mm-hmm. in that uh, people never, you know, they don't, they don't have a lot of very strong minority um, mm-hmm. uh, sort of group there. So when I went there, I didn't think anything of it, but clearly people did not sort of, uh, they just assumed that was, was from somewhere else, not mm-hmm. from, from Canada. Um, but I, one thing I fast learned when I, when I did my master's degree was I did not want to work with youth. <laughs> it's, it's funny because I, that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to work with young offenders. And, um, at that point I decided this is just not for me at all. Like not at all. So it was a challenge to work with, um, with youth and their families, um, especially those who are part of the justice system. And so I, I decided to, um, apply to a very different program for my PhD and I ended up studying uh, eyewitness testimony. And investigative interview, so I went in that direction for a bit for my PhD. Um, but it kind of brought me back around again because I started working in a clinic in Victoria, and that's where I did my PhD. And so, one of the things I started doing was running um, uh, programs for individuals who had committed sexual abuse. And so I started running those programs in the community, and just kind of went right back to working with offenders again, but okay. adults this time. Wow. Yeah. So do you have any, well, it will kind of go way back to the beginning. Do you have any family that were in, involved in this kind of work? Uh, did anybody kind of guide you to this or is this just, this is all on your own? This is all on my own. Yeah. It's, it's I, I'm, I'd say I'm probably like the, um, the first generation of, of people in my family who went to the university period. Mm-hmm. Right. So prior to that, no one else went to university. Um, my sister went went to university too, but uh, I'm the only one that got a PhD in the end. And I know that was a little different because I don't think my parents expect me to keep going. Um, but in order to actually be in this field, you really kind of have to pursue, you know, higher degrees in order to to be a psychologist, to be in the field, to actually work with work with people in justice system. So it, it kind of worked out for me at least. I imagine um, being in this field, you have to maintain that. So you are constantly taking courses or constantly learning. Yeah, it's uh, constantly learning. Oh my God, the field is ever-changing too, right? So it's it's not just getting further degrees. It's um, it's because research changes the way we look at things. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm when I'm evaluating someone, for example, you know, when I left Victoria, I came to Edmonton for uh, to work at forensic mental health. And the reason why is because I started running the um, or facilitating the the sex offender programs here. It was really good, but uh, one thing that I learned as I was in in that field was that the way we look at treatment and the way we do assessments keeps changing. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to say that, you know, um, what I did about, you know, 20 years ago is the same what I do right now, but it's not, not even close, right? Yeah. Things we learned over time about offenders, but about uh, also what kind of risk assessment tools we use to evaluate people completely change. And I mean, I know the same thing happens in policing as well, you know, like yeah. the way you do things, you know, 20, 30 years ago, completely different than the way you do things now. So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, you so you've done a bunch of traveling for school. Uh, how much schooling in total, or to get a, I guess the PhD and the master's, and then you would have a, uh, a bachelor's before that. So is this like 16, 12, oh 16 years we're kind of going on? <laughs> and you bring that up, that's really depressing, but it's <laughs> a while. Um, yeah, I think. If I calculate how many years, oh my God, you're talking, I will say exactly how many. I'll say, I'll say 10 plus years yeah. <laughs> that I've been in school. But uh, what took me the longest is my PhD. Yeah, yeah. for sure. 
what is a PhD? What's kind of entailed in like doing all these extra degrees? Um, so, you know, when I, th- when you do your, your master's degree, it starts changing once you start doing graduate programs, right? You have to do a thesis, um, create and, and carry out a research project on your own. And you've got to really kind of contribute something to the, to the literature from that. When you do your PhD, it's even bigger, right? So mm-hmm. you've got to do something that is something you've done fairly independently. It's not really stemming from your supervisor's, you know, research. It's got to be something that you are contributing that you've created and and really kind of like hypothesize what what you're aiming for. So my my PhD, for example, I was looking at denial among sex offenders, and my interest was in that because I was running groups at the time. So the first thing that I thought of was, why is it that certain guys in my group, you know, I I liked working with, and mm-hmm. the ones I did not like working with, and of course most people kind of go, well, they're all you know labeled as sex offenders. Why would you even think that, right? Yeah. But it's just easier when you have a um, you build rapport with someone and you're mm-hmm. able to do therapy with them. So for me, what, what I realized is that one of the things that distinguished some of them was some of them accepted responsibility and some of them really minimized, made excuses, kind of bullshitted their way through, you know, yeah. the, the groups. And I realized those are the ones I had huge challenges with, right? So how do you know, uh, how do you know that they're lying or they're not taking it serious or whatever they might be doing? Right? <laughs> well, I'd love to say that credibility assessment would work in a group program, but I think at the end of the day, it comes down to um, how consistent are they in terms of their behavior. Mm. So they can talk the talk all they want, but if they don't do any of that outside of the group, yeah. you know, do anything yeah. outside of the, the program where they say they're going to actually follow up with things or attend appointments or um, not frequent places that they know they shouldn't, um, you know, hang around with people that they know they should not be exposed to. Um, if they don't follow up with that, then it's clearly it's just they're, they're just talking the talk, right? This sounds exactly like everybody we deal with that's on right. probation or parole. Yes, absolutely. Those are the exact conditions they all get. Huge overlap. <laughs> a lot of them don't follow them. Uh, nothing really seems to happen with them after, but <laughs> that's yes. a gripe for another podcast. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so you, uh, uh, you're you working with these groups and how do you find them? Like these, when you're trying to deal with them, uh, maybe a, and as a female, do you get a different reaction from them or do they, I want to say like, are they more compliant because they're talking mm-hmm. to you? Does it make a difference? It's, you know, no one ever really asked me about that. It's kind of funny. Um, the first thing that I, I thought of when I started working in this field was my age. And I was thinking, you know, when you start working in the field, you're young and you figure you're green and you're going to be um, easily persuaded or, um, let's say manipulated, you know, mm. to, to kind of agree to certain things or approve things that they want to do, like a certain position that they want to take on or job they want to take on. Um, so I felt like that was the first thing that really stood out for me was, was there's that bit of an age gap. You have an older guy in front of you who's um, committed multiple offenses and how are they going to respect me as a, as a, a young person, you know, who's, who's making decisions about them. In terms of the, um, you know, when, when I think about uh, being a female, I think, one of the things that that stood out for me was I'd probably say the combination between being young at that time and then and also being female was um, was an interesting combination. I don't think I really faced um, it's funny a lot of people kind of think, well, you work with mostly sex offenders, and that was my primary sort of um, uh, I'd say client mm-hmm. uh, that I work with. Um, 
that if you're a female working with that population, you know, isn't it kind of uncomfortable working with them, talking about sexuality, talking about their their sexual behaviors, about their relationships, about you know how often they masturbate, how often you know how many sexual encounters they've had, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, you've got to really be comfortable with the material, um, and I always was, so I was very comfortable with asking the questions, but asking it in a way that was not going to be um, judgmental. Um, in a way that was going to be, you know, I'm going to scoff at some things that they say. So you just avoid doing that. It's it's like this game face that you go in into an interview yeah. with, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I worked a short stint in our sexual assault section. Uh, and I know some of the material that can come up and you're trying to describe it, whether you're talking to a victim or uh, the potential accused person. Right. Uh, but you're just, you kind of got to remain matter of fact. Yes. And... Uh, yeah, and there some of the interview courses I've taken like they they talk about just you go in and you know this person you're dealing with uh, physically could be repulsive or really gross. You're still gonna shake their hand. <laughs> you're still gonna treat them with dignity and respect, and and because you're you're there with a purpose. Right. So it's kind of interesting to hear. It's still the same, but I guess a lot of the stuff you do plays into the whole interviewing uh, aspect. Yeah. So, yeah. It's interesting you bring up that whole, um, you know, like someone who's gross or someone who's, <laughs> who, who has a very strong smell <laughs> attached to them. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's, it's funny how our nose can get acclimatized to things when you're stuck in a room with someone for a long period of time. And most of the time, I'm okay with that. Um, but I think I realize there's certain distinct smells that I cannot get acclimatized to. Like, yeah, yeah. like one of them is um, is feces. So I had one I had one client who actually shit himself before he came into the to, to the meeting. And I'm like, oh God, this interview is going to be brutal. He was that scared. <laughs> um, <laughs> he couldn't contain himself. I've had people who had actually peed while they're they're meeting with me. And I was sort of like, oh, okay. Don't draw too much attention to that. Just, you know, kind of keep going with the interview. Um, so, that I can handle. <laughs> so that you've already done 50% of policing then. <laughs> no, I think you guys have it a little worse. <laughs> yeah, well, I've had to wrestle with said people. Yes. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, so, it, uh, so you do uh, the master's, the PhD. Uh, where do you kind of go from there? So once you've accomplished these, how do you transition into the working world? Um, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, when I, when I came to, to Edmonton um, from Victoria, the first thing I started doing is running the programs there um, and facilitating the, the group programs. Um, it was interesting because you're no longer, especially getting licensure. So once you're, you're when you're a psychologist, you need to get a license. And so I went through the licensing process within a year. And once you have your license, you are independent, right? There's no one co-signing for you. There's no one saying, you know, like, okay, let me review your reports and then we'll send them out. These are all on you. So, so you can open your own practice. Yes. Deal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I always say to I always say to my students, I always say, it sounds like a great idea to immediately open a private practice once you finish your PhD, but you do realize nobody else is overseeing what you do. Mm-hmm. And so you're if you're working in a forensic field and you're sending off a report to the court, no one else evaluates that except for you. So your your opinion is is literally that you know what's contained in that in that report. Do you fall under uh, what's the uh, the doctor one? College of Physicians and Surgeons. Right. So, so uh, there is a College of um, Alberta Psychologists. Mm. So each province has its own. And um, so CAP would be the, the acronym for that one. And that's where you get licensed. Yeah. Okay. So they license, but they're not reviewing your work necessarily. No, no. You go through sort of all the exams and, and uh, there's an oral exam, a written exam. Uh, now there's a jurisprudence exam, so we understand the laws and, and whatnot in, in Alberta. But you need to complete all that in order to actually be fully licensed. Okay. So you 
take care of all that. You're licensed. You're working, running some of the programs. Um, what are, what do these programs look like, and what are you doing while you're there? <laughs> so it's been a little while since I've done this, <laughs> since I've been uh, at McEwen. Um, what I what I did was, you know, you do two separate things, um, uh, well, multiple se- multiple things. But one of the things you do is is assessment. So assessments that you do for the courts are to determine, you know, their level of risk to the judge. And so you do a full workup. Um, for me, I would, you know, administer different psychometric tests. Um, and then I'd provide an opinion about what level of risk this person is at, right? Any, any concerns about mental health as well. The, um, the treatment side of things, it's mostly going to be in a group format. So you have maybe anywhere from about 10 to 20 guys in, in one room. Um, they're, most, they're all male because, uh, you know, trying to include a female in, a, in, a, um, in one of the group programs is a little bit more challenging. There's different issues that you can't really address in a, in a group full of guys in there. So mm-hmm. we'd, we'd run those programs for about, at that time, it was about 20 weeks. They'd come in after work, um, you know, in the evenings, and uh, and we'd we'd cover a lot of different areas, um, risk factors that are relevant to their sexual offending. So things like um, their sec- sexual self-regulation, how do they cope with things? Do they use sexual kind of activities to do that? Do they use porn? Are they able to replace that with things that are more healthier, pro-social? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also addressing the biggest thing is addressing their thinking, right? Yeah. It's, you know, I mentioned about justifications and, and excuses that, that people will make for their behavior. It's, it's a pretty common thing. It's not just offenders, right? Every human being does that. But how do you address the ones that are most relevant to their sexual offending behavior? So we, we try to identify what those are for them. So is this kind of similar to uh, maybe like Al- yeah, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or something where the first step is uh, admitting you have the, the problem? Is that kind of like the, is that where the steps kind of form out of? Yes and no. It's, it's interesting in the field of, um, in the field of looking at sexual violence, uh, you know, in the past when they looked at someone who did not accept responsibility for their behavior, the first thing that people would consider is not including them in a group program because they weren't taking any, um, taking any responsibility. Hmm. What we know the, these days is that we need to actually include those individuals in a group program, even though it's incredibly challenging to have someone in there who's going to say, I don't, I didn't do this. I don't know why I'm here. I think that, you know, the victim should be here and not me. It's, uh, you know, like, I know I'm not one of these perverts who are in the room. Right? Mm-hmm. So you'll often get that kind of kind of feel and you kind of go, how do you include someone like that mm. in, a, in a group program when no one else is expressing that, right? Or they're expressing different variations of it. And so these days, you know, the, the key thing is including them so that they get exposed to other people who are in there who are taking different levels of responsibility and they start seeing value in, in why they're there, right? Maybe they aren't the same as someone else in there, but what can I get from this so I can not be in this room again? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, you can always learn from somebody else. You don't have the exact same experience, but... Right. Yeah. Um, so you were talking about doing some of the assessments for court. Mm-hmm. Is that like the not criminally responsible, uh, that kind of designation? Uh, no, they're more for um, sentencing. So, you know, the judge mm-hmm. might have someone where they've, you know, they've either found guilty or the, the defendant has pled guilty. And at that point, they make a determination about their sentence. And so they want to glean more information. They want to know what level of risk this person's at. So they'll request for a, um, um, a pre-sentence report. You often see that with young offenders. So you see youths who go through the court system, they'll always ask for something like a PDR, predisposition report. And then if you look for adults, what you'll see is that there's, um, there's a section in the criminal code that says, you know, that you can ask for a pre-sentence report. 
and actually uh, get that information so it can guide the, the the judge in terms of what they can, um, you know, what what degree would they want to actually, you know, put this person in further uh, number of months or additional years or, you know, uh, in terms of supervision and also um, incarceration. Do do you find that if, yeah, I guess, is it is it the more, I'll say, issues a person has, the shorter their sentence, or is it really just, it's like depending on a whole lot of factors? Oh, it's a lot of factors, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah if you look at most sentencing reports, I mean, the judge has to look at past cases, of course, but mm-hmm. one of the things that they, they will take in consideration is, you know, if they look at the pre-sentence report and this person's, you know, scores quite high in terms of their overall risk, in terms of um, committing another violent act or another sexual uh, violent act, then they, they really want to place some weight on that and determine where they're going to place them to. Because if you, you know, put them in, uh, sorry, if you give them a federal sentence, they're going to get different kinds of treatment and different kinds of programming, right? Mm-hmm. Versus, you know, a provincial sentence. Can, yeah, because my thinking is like, if somebody's a, a, a higher risk or they have more things to deal with, I guess, maybe you're looking at keeping them in longer uh, and they're getting more programming because you know where they are and you can essentially make them go or at right. least put them in the seat, uh, whether they participate or not, uh, that's a different story. But, you know, um, so is that kind of, is that, is that true? Is that like how that would happen? Like you can keep them in longer to make them do more rehabilitation or whatever it might be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, I think that's one of the big considerations. If you have someone who has um, repeat offending, right? And they are deemed, you know, a moderate to high risk, then, of course, giving them a longer sentence, meaning that they can um, go through federal system, go through a full treatment program through, you know, like uh, Saskatoon or or in Bowdoin, as opposed to going to a provincial program, which is a little bit more limited in what kind of program they offer. And it's going to be much more short term, mm-hmm. right? Because it's going to be less than two years and they may not be put in those programs immediately. They will sit in, you know, a, a prison system for several months before they're actually referred to that program. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And you know what, in some of the stuff I was looking at, when I was looking up your, uh, bio for McEwen, you had mentioned there like measures of violence and risk, uh, excuses and cognitions of offenders. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of talking on these right now. Um, maybe we'll stay with this, but I'll, I'll get back to another thing. I was going to ask how you got to McEwen, <laughs> but since we're on this, I'll, I'll stay here. How do you measure some of this? So how do you tell a person is a high risk? Right. So you do need to do a full full interview, um, gather collateral information. Um, there's there's a whole kind of process you go through as a risk assessment. So usually when I, I carried out these assessments, I would interview them anywhere from about two to three hours. It could be across one or two you know sort of sessions, might be even additional ones if necessary. Um, I'd usually try to gather collateral information. That could be in a number of ways. It could be past reports that were done on them. Um, if they were on probation before, I'd get, you know, some of the mm-hmm. probation reports that were on them. If there's uh, people that I can contact who would give me a different idea about their character, about their behavior, um, individuals who know about their offending, so then like, I'd want to glean that information from them. Like too. family? It so uh, could be family, yeah. yeah. Um, I'd probably say that most of the offenders that I saw who uh, committed sexual offenses may not have told their families, mm. or they don't know the nature of their offense that they're in, in courts for. So oftentimes okay. they will say no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm thinking like maybe you contact the family to uh, see if they experienced something while they were growing up or, you know. Right. So getting background information is definitely one thing I'd probably glean as well. Um, You know, like getting collaterals to tell me a bit about their upbringing, you know, how they were in school, did they do well in school. Um, 
you know, uh, what were, was their attitude growing up kind of thing? Were they respectful to adults, that kind of thing? So I try I, I to gather some of that information. Um, but you have to be really careful about that course because mm. I can't share why am I doing an assessment on them, right? Okay. can't share that they're in for a sexual assault and, you know, they're, uh, they have three charges against them and, and this is, you know, before the courts right now. Uh, so I can't share any of those those details unless they already know already, right? And yeah. so if they tell me, it's it's fine. But for me to share that with them, and if what they were, you know, completely not in the know of it, then it's a huge huge issue. So I've I've got to keep that kind of away from from that interview if I'm going to engage them. Yeah, because you're trying not to, I guess, skew kind of the answers they give you, right? So. Or give them information that they didn't know, right? Yeah, so yeah. you can imagine with um, asking for consent from the the client is really key, right? So they need to know that if I'm going to be contacting them, they're going to be wondering, why mm -hmm. am I asking them these questions? Um, they might even ask me about, you know, details with regards to the court, right? And why they're even, um, what the nature of the, the offense was and who the victim was. And so I can't share those things with them. So I always make it clear that if I'm going to be doing this, it's important for you to contact them. Let them know I'm going to reach out to them. Yeah. And you can share whatever you want with them. But keep in mind, if they ask me questions about this, I can't tell them this, this information. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, how did you go from doing these jobs to uh, McEwen? Well, it's funny because when I, when I came to Edmonton, I, you know, before even coming to Edmonton, I was actually applying for academic positions. So I already knew I was going to go into an academic route, but this position came up. And, um, and so that's why I ended up coming here, working with um, Alberta Health Services for a number of years before I went to McEwen. Um, really enjoyed it. I, I I was a little bit surprised that I wanted to kind of continue in a, in a clinical um, role for a while. But one thing I was missing when I was there is doing research. There's mm. no time when you're a clinician to do any research at all. So as much as I can try to do that, you just don't have time to write it up, analyze data, that kind of thing. Um, so the position came up at McEwen for teaching. And I missed a little bit of the teaching too. I was doing some teaching when I was in Victoria. Um, and I ended up applying to that position because I kind of thought, you know, there I can actually do that. And I can maybe maintain a little bit of clinical work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did not maintain clinical work. It's just, there's no time. Right? Yeah. You're either one or the other kind of thing. Yeah. So so I did it for about a year. I, I, I did continue to run groups for about a year after I started McEwen, but I just couldn't do it any longer. And it was great because a few years into it, I still did some pre-sentence reports and I brought some of my students mm -hmm. and they actually got to sit in with me. But I just, I couldn't manage to do sort of both of them anymore. So, um, so I really just focused on research and teaching. And, you know, I, I love teaching. Um, I'm not teaching at the moment because I'm in an administrative position, but I was teaching up to about, up to about a year and a half ago. Yeah. And I usually teach about six courses a, a year. And it's, uh, it's fun because the students just, they glom onto to forensic. Um, they love the abnormal side of things. But as soon as you start talking about, you know, the justice system and talking about offenders and talking about risk assessment, you could tell the the passion that kind of goes into that that field. What's the difference between abnormal and forensic? I would think <laughs> uh, things in forensic are abnormal. <laughs> yes, in a different way, <laughs> not justice involved. Um, so abnormal is more focused on um, you know like the the psychological disorders, um, mm. schizophrenia, um, you know depression, anxiety disorders, and giving kind of a bit of a survey of all the different mental disorders, um, whatever you can fit in in a half a year. That is right. Yeah. Um, and then in forensic, of course, it's focused on the whole spectrum of, of things. So anywhere from the time that a person has committed a crime, you know, where it involves police, police investigations, credibility assessments, um, to the sentencing process and understanding the criminal justice system. Um, laced with that is understanding, you know, um, you mentioned before, you know, NCR, so not criminally responsible, 
um, looking at their competency and um, and standing in a trial in court. And then up until the time that you're dealing with a person who is, you know, a violent or a sexual offender. Um, and even like, you know, looking at cases of, you know, homicide and, and um, youths who committed offenses as well. Mm-hmm. So you start looking at the whole spectrum from the time that the person gets charged all the way to to the time that they are released from prison. I kind of talking just about the NCR process. Have you have you been involved in those much? Or can I you have. comment on them? <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've have been part of a team before. Um, okay. Uh, so usually in, in in Alberta, what happens is you have a team of people who work on an assessment. The psychiatrist usually um, authors the, the final report at the end, but there's usually a social worker and there's usually a psychologist who carries out some psychological testing. Oh, okay. And so I usually take on that part of it. It's been interesting. I've sat on that team a few times. Um, and I used to run actually treatment programs for, for them. So that was more the side that I kind of work with um, with NCR patients. But uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because the assessment process is, you know, anywhere from 30 to 60 days when they, they assess them. And all you're providing is the report. And it's really the judge that comes down to that final decision, whether yeah. or not they disregard what you put in the report or not. Yeah, I always, um, I, I don't think anybody has an idea of how they work. I didn't know it was a team. Um, but so what's kind of the thinking behind those? So if a person's not mentally fit to, uh, is it stand trial or is it fit to, uh, you know, be happy with what they've done? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> so there's, yeah, there's two aspects of it. So there's the standing trial part, which um, uh, is assessed to determine whether or not they can actually proceed with the trial, right? And that's that also involves a team that does the, the fitness assessment. Um, so, you know, in order for them to be competent to stand trial, then they can proceed if they're deemed competent. If they're not deemed competent, then they get either held in um, a facility for a period of time until they become... Um, more cognizant, more able to actually see the differences, you know, in terms of what's, you know, what's real, what's not. Um, they could have a number of different kinds of diagnoses, but um, really at the end of the day, it's psychosis. That's really, you know, the concern is that this, does this person actually distinguish real from, from fiction, right? Mm. Um, so once that's determined, they can go to court. So that's a fitness assessment. But the other thing where you're talking about is um, NCR, so not criminally um, responsible for unaccountable mental disorder. You're talking about now they're fit for trial. They go through the trial process, but they've, um, you know, their side has declared that they are uh, not, basically they were not competent at the time when they actually um, uh, carried out the act, right? So they are of not right mind. Uh, again, usually due to psychosis. So mm-hmm. then it's a, a different determination. And then they go through a very different process through a review board rather than going through the court system. Wow. Yeah. I find the stuff with mental health is uh, so complicated. <laughs> Because you never have just one thing. It's it's like 10 things always overlapping. Whereas, you know, you get a physical injury. It's like you have a broken bone. Fix the broken bone. Done. Uh, the mental side of things, yeah, very, uh, there's so much to it. So intricate. So. Yeah, I wish there was a, a way for us to diagnose that involved, you know, some blood tests or something like that. Wouldn't that be easier? But yeah, unfortunately, no. You're talking about a, um, a full assessment workup, you know, that it really relies at the end of the day on um, expert opinion, right? And so that's quite different than than you think about sort of whether a person has cancer or not. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, and that was going to be one of the questions I was going to get to was like, is there any way uh, that you can foresee a person might uh, maybe have one of these conditions or that they're going to offend? 
kind of a minority, <laughs> minority report, report. <laughs> idea. Yeah. But can we, like, you know, we can scan a brain and see that you uh, have CTE, right? You, you have effects from concussions, but can we see any of this stuff? Oh, that's, uh, that's a lot tougher to do, as you could probably imagine. Um, I mean, there's, there's some tools if we can identify certain individuals, but it's certainly not going to cover everybody that you will ever run across. So, for instance, um, you know, I mentioned psychopathy before. So if you have someone who's been assessed using the psychopathy checklist and they meet the cutoff for that, there's a pretty good chance, um, if that person's already been involved with the justice system, mm. that they're likely going to commit another offense again. Right. One of the best predictors of future behavior. Um, there's there's one that really stands out in psychopathy. The psychopathy checklist was never intended to be developed as a tool to predict future behavior, but it ended up being one of the better predictors. It was purely just a, an assessment tool mm -hmm. to determine whether you have those personality features. But they found that when people met the cutoff for it, then what you'll find is that there is their their level of risk in, it significantly increases. Really? And that means that they're likely going to reoffend again in some form or fashion. I'm just thinking, you know, sometimes you can hook up the brain and you can see the electrical impulses kind of firing and what part of the brain is working more. I wonder if they've ever tested anybody and just seen like, well, this guy's brain is working this way right. and same with this one and same with this one. So maybe there's a pattern here and we can kind of determine. Right. You know, the hard th thing is that we can't really, um, we're not great at predicting um, behavior per se, right? Because people change their minds and there's mm. a lot of other outside factors that play a role. But we are pretty good at identifying if people have a inclination to certain things. So for example, um, using magnetic resonance imaging, there's a lot of research that's moving towards looking at how that tool can be really useful if we can afford it. It's quite expensive, mm -hmm. to, um, you know, um, assessment to actually see whether or not a person has a... Um, a preference for certain kinds of sexual deviancy. Mm -hmm. So using those tools for that purpose, absolutely. There's a lot more error, room for error for other tools that uh, that have been produced, like, um, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of the phallometric testing. No. So yeah, some of my guys would call it, you know, Peter meter. So basically <laughs> <laughs> measuring a, you know, a, a male erection to to certain stimuli that they might be exposed to, right? Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, there's, there's some errors that go along with that. But if you're measuring the brain, it's a, it's a little bit more accurate, yeah. Well, so, and one of the things I had kind of marked down as profiling versus predictors. So we're talking about predictors. Are, is there any good profiling that you can do on people? Uh, it's, you know, every, it's funny because a lot of my students will come up to me and say that, you know, I really want to be a, I really want to be a criminal profiler because, you know, they watch TV and, yeah. <laughs> and that always kills me. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> um, profiling is more of, um, it's, it's less of a scientific endeavor. It's more of an art than anything. And so I think people tend to assume that if you go into profiling, you're going to learn all these skills and how to be able to be proficient at identifying, you know, sort of like the minority report, you know, and, uh, you know, finding out who is this person who's committed this crime. To me, the, the best profiling is a really good investigative um, process, right? So mm -hmm. really good interviewing, um, really solid and uh, rigorous approach in collecting evidence. To me, those are the more valuable components of, of trying to profile who a person might be. But to try to profile whether a person is going to um, carry out a similar act again or where it's going to happen against which victims, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. very difficult to try to do. Um, you know, I think we're better at risk assessment to determine the level that person's going to offend again as opposed to trying to figure out who's the person and can we narrow it down. 
I know criminology, um, you know, moves in that direction. It's a little bit out of my purview, but I know that there's a number of different approaches, um, like routine activity theory and, and, and a few of those kind of approaches where they can identify a little bit better, but it's certainly not foolproof. So yeah. if people are looking for foolproof, it's just not going to happen. Well, I know some of our analysts, they do, uh, they'll send you like a map and right. it'll show, you know, uh, we've had these B&Es in this area and it's, there's some similarities, whether it's the means or how they get away or whatever. Uh, and then they'll use that and try and predict where the next one kind of happens. So, um, and then speaking of domestic violence, we fill out the ODERAs, yeah. uh, fever forms. So there's a, there's a bunch of forms that, right. I don't know if they're exactly for that purpose, but um, it seems like they are because we ask questions about past behavior, addictions, mental health. Right. Um, and uh, at least on the uh, ODERA, we're giving them a score. So, right. so if we go back to the first thing you mentioned, you're talking about sort of that hot spotting. And mm -hmm. I think that is very valuable to try to see where are, you know, more likely where crimes are going to occur. Not necessarily if it's the same perpetrator or not, but, you know, if uh, we're trying to identify sort of areas that are going to be hot. And yeah. for some reason, you know, we see an increase in crime in that area. I think there those those kinds of techniques are quite quite valuable. Um, what you're talking about with Theodora and, and using the fever, it's interesting. I have done research on this with with EPS, and it's um, it's definitely an area that I'm I'm passionate about because I'm very much about data, right? So yeah. if the data doesn't show what you want, then my view is we shouldn't be using it. So um, the fever was developed um, in, intended to actually gather information. It wasn't intended to be a research, uh, sorry, a risk assessment tool. Mm. But it ended up sort of being that um, by the end of it. You know, I remember talking to a few constables where they talked about it like, oh, we use this tool and, you know, it tells me about, you know, whether they're going to reoffend again. I'm like, oh, that's not what it's for. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's an interview schedule, right? It's, it helps the person at the time, the constable at the time, to gather all the relevant information and not just ask, ask questions about the, the criminal behavior, but about the perpetrator's behavior. Mm -hmm. So it's great for that part. Um, but what you're supposed to use the information for is to actually score them on a, an actual validated tool. So a validated tool would be the ODARA. Mm -hmm. It's well validated with uh, Ontario Provincial Police and a few other areas, but also even in Edmonton as well. We've used the data here. Yeah. It predicts really well. Yeah. So if you're using that tool to try to determine risk, the ODARA would be useful for that. Mm -hmm. And so how people kind of look at these tools and they see it as a bit of a make-work project. I have to check these boxes and I don't know what to do with these things afterwards. Um, but what we use them in, in in forensic psychology is you take a risk assessment tool and you see where they score there. And then you make a determination about how much am I going to follow up this case, right? Okay. So it shouldn't interfere with the investigation. That should go on as, as normal. But if you're doing like victim services or safety planning and all those kinds of things that kind of follow up a victim to see whether or not this person is at a greater risk later on, then that's what you use the risk assessment for. Mm -hmm. If they're deemed low risk, then you kind of go, why am I wasting my time following up with them every single week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something could happen, but the thing is the risk assessment tool tells us that, you know, that person is not a high risk. So if something were to happen, it would be something that we'd, we wouldn't have predicted. But if they're high risk, right, they're in the score of like six, seven, eight, and that kind of thing, then what we should be doing is we should be following them up more frequently, mm -hmm. right? Or if you're making decisions about bail, you know, make determinations using a risk assessment tool is much more valid then kind of going, okay, I think this person has a repeat offense, so we should probably, you know, detain them. Well, I think one of the biggest challenges we've had as a police service and uh, even in the whole justice system, probably even in the mental health side of things, uh, is the follow-up. There's, you know, just the time in a day to go 
person to person. A lot of the people don't maintain an address. They don't maintain a phone number. Their family hasn't talked to them. Uh, so it's hard to find them. You know, uh, that's probably the hardest part. That's why I was thinking about this whole uh, parole and probation. And, you know, if, if somebody's a, a higher risk, you keep them in for longer. Right now, there's a big argument about how uh, we just seem to let everybody go <laughs> nowadays. So, yeah, I, I mean, the the follow-up is definitely a piece that is, I would say, completely missing. We yeah. know a lot of our guys, like real high-risk guys, more for gang violence with the stuff I deal with. Uh, they get let out. You know, they've been caught with a gun several times. And it's just, okay, and they'll be back out before I'm done my shift. Catch them the next month, back out before I'm done my shift. It's like, well, they just had a gun. Yes. <laughs> so, and follow-up's impossible. No address, no phone numbers. Nobody will tell you anything. Yeah, they're NFA, <laughs> right? They have no no fixed yeah. address. So it yeah. means like, how do you follow up with them unless you go through their their criminal peers that you know that they associate mm-hmm. with? But that's the only way you can, can get in contact with them. You're, you're absolutely right. I think the biggest challenge with most of the, I'd say the frequent, well, it sounds terrible, frequent flyers that you guys have, yep. right? Is that you're going to get people who are going to go through that revolving door. And unfortunately, what you end up finding is that, well, how much time do we put into that? How do you prioritize it? Is it because of how often they offend? Or is it uh, the seriousness of their offense? Mm-hmm. And so I think some decisions have to be made. And, and I think each police service looks at it a little bit differently. Um, I, I think my understanding with EPS is very focused on sort of the frequent flyer, right? You know, yeah. like if you're having someone coming through the revolving door, we want to re- reduce that. Um, in the forensic world, in my world, it's more about the harm, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. This person may very well go out and reoffend again, but it's not against another person and it's not going to be causing serious harm. So I need to focus my my energy on the person who's going to seriously commit offense. Yeah, we have, um, they had a program they ran a little while ago and they were trying to figure out which uh, people to target, which people to deal with. And usually when you come up with some sort of scoring matrix, it's based on frequency. So this person's dealt with every single day, they just skyrocket, right? They're the number one offender, right. but they're doing, I don't know, chocolate bar thefts every single day. Are they really that bad? Do we really need to deal with that person? Then with some of the people we deal with, uh, these guys can be completely hands-off of the process, but they're calling shots behind the scenes. And this is the person telling people to murder people. Right. Seems like a very important thing to deal with, but they never have, you know, they have one occurrence a year with the police, so they never score on anything. So the scoring matrix not really that great and trying to figure out how to measure these things uh quite a challenge yeah you can't capture the ones that you really want to target that's mm-hmm. gonna uh, you know at the end of the day reduce numbers right yeah. um so yeah to me i i think that when you think about the public's interest in things the first thing that will stand out is you know they never feel that i think it's it's very common in in, in research to show that the public is never happy with sentencing. Mm-hmm. They're never happy with a follow-up, right? Yeah. Uh, they always want it more uh, restrictive, more conservative than than you know what we we can do given the the sentencing guidelines that are in our criminal code. But when I look at um, when I look at the, the the most common complaint is they look at the violence and they look at the the harm that it's done to another person. Mm-hmm. That's what they're most concerned about, right? Yeah. They don't want the harm that's done, and as much as they don't want to lose their property. They don't want, you know, break-ins. They don't want, you know, um, you know, thefts, those kinds of things. Uh, really, at the end of the day, those are the things that are going to be forgotten. 
Yeah. And what's going to be remembered is a really violent um, incident that led to either death or, or you know, um, you know, severe injury. Right. So with the work you've done with domestic violence, why is it so uh, likely that a domestic partner is going to be at a higher risk for having an offense committed against them? And why are these such a, um, I don't say hot button issue, but like a, just a higher priority? So is it just because of the ease of access to a potential victim for whoever's offending? Um, when it comes to domestic violence, it's interesting. It's a, it's a different kind of category in a lot of ways in that you, you know who the victim is, you know who the, the perpetrator is. There's no sort of hunting and searching for who that, that perpetrator is, right? Not like a sexual assault. Um, when you think about a, a domestic violence incident, this is also something that doesn't get reported all the time, mm -hmm. right? So when it does get reported, it's usually because it was so violent that it led to a report yeah. um, by another witness or maybe the victim, you know, decides that they, they are going to report this, right? But it's also more, I'd say it's, it's a fraction of those cases where it's the victim only that re reports it. So it's unique in, in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, what the, the challenge is, is when you're identifying who's the highest risk, it's gathering information about their level of risk and, and making sure you prioritize those cases. And some people wonder, well, what are the risk factors? So to me, the, the, there's a lot of typology research that's out there. And what they kind of point out to is that the ones who are more antisocial are the ones that are going to be the most violent generally and mm -hmm. also within the relationship. So they will commit violence outside, you know, you know bar fights, um, assaulting the neighbor that pissed them off, um, and then also assaulting their, their spouse and maybe their kids and maybe the pet. Um, so you'll, you'll see that, you know, like the more severe ones. So they'll have much more frequent kinds of offenses on their record. The ones who are family only are the ones that are a little bit harder to detect because they have kind of a double life at work. Mm. They're a great guy, get along with everyone, no problem. The neighbor thinks he's, he's great because, you know, he rakes leaves for him and everything. But he goes home and um, and he is very abusive in the family and maybe even coarsely controlling towards his wife, right? So you start seeing these kinds of behaviors within that relationship. But again, only detected by family members, people who are close to them, and that um, and that partner, right? Well, yeah, and I'm thinking, you know, we never do any of these forms for a, a, a bar assault, right? <laughs> but we do them for the family one. And that kind of got me thinking, uh, you know, this is, uh, if it's your spouse, this is a person you should love. <laughs> you, you chose to live with them. Um, so maybe like, why would you offend against that person? Why is this a higher risk situation? So what kind of makes it that? Oh, now we're getting the psychology of it. So, I mean, <laughs> so you're talking about someone who, um, I would probably say if you start assessing the way they think, Mm -hmm. Then you start getting at some of the some of the potential risk factors that are present in those relationships, as opposed to ones that didn't involve any kind of violence or any kind of course of control, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you know what you'll see is that one of the really good predictors of future um, offending behavior in domestic violence incidences is a victim's perception about the likelihood of whether or not their partner is going to actually offend. The uh, victim's perception. Victim's perspective is yeah. the predictor of. Whether yeah. that person will offend. Yeah, it's unique okay. to, to domestic violence. You you don't see that with, you know, sexual assault or sexual violence, or you don't see that with, you know, like the guys who, you know, were involved in bar fights, right? Mm -hmm. But because that partner has seen this pattern for so long, they can, they're actually really good at assessing whether mm -hmm. or not there's a likelihood that they're going to actually, um, they're going to attack them again. 
so that's definitely one one major factor. The factor that always predicts just about any kind of future behavior is past behavior, obviously. So that's definitely another another factor. But what also stands out is, you know, when you look at their thinking, um, the thinking of the perpetrator, right? So, you know, their views about their spouse, their, um, you know, they might carry misogynistic kind of patriarchal kind of perspectives that, you know, she should be doing these things, um, the sense of entitlement that they might have as well. Mm. So when you think about the, um, the, you know, in psychology, we call it schemas. Basically, it's the way you think, the, the lens that you view the world in. Like, I deserve this and I should get mine. Right. Yeah. Um, when you have that kind of perspective, and if you can assess that, that would be really telling about whether or not this person is going to reoffend again. So that yeah. we call it, you know, um, cognitions. Right. You know, they're they're antisocial cognitions. The, the way they think about the world, the way they, they deserve things, the way they feel entitled about things. That's that's really stands out in in domestic violence situations. Okay. Uh, well, I kind of wanted to talk about uh, some of our offenders in the gang world. So, uh, one of the questions I had, uh, was, you know, we, it's related to like a lot of the gun violence we see right now, uh, the guys getting involved in it and it's 99% guys, uh, they're getting younger and younger. And, um, I mean, you've done some of the work with youth, but do you, uh, do you have any idea of why such young people can get involved in this and almost have like a complete. I don't know if they have a complete disregard for like the potential outcome. Maybe they're not even thinking of the potential outcome, but when I'm driving down in a neighborhood in broad daylight and I shoot up the front of someone's house or I'm shooting at a car, like those bullets don't stop. They go through, they go through walls. Right. Um, so they're doing these in residential neighborhoods. So what's kind of going, what would be going on in someone's mind when they're doing that type of stuff? Oh, there's a, I mean, there's a few things that come to my mind. One is, you know, when you think about anyone who carries out any violent act generally, um, there's a depersonalization that kind of happens too. And again, it goes back to thinking, right? Um, it's easy for them to kind of think, well, I, I, I didn't hit anyone. I'm hitting a house. I'm not hitting an actual real person. There's no real empathy that's needed to, or remorse that I need to feel for that because damaging someone's property is not a big deal, right, for them. So there's, there's partly that, that they can depersonalize um, part of that. I think the other thing as well is what is the most reinforcing? I mean, at the end of the day, we are all behavioral, you know, human beings, right? We rely on reinforcement and we rely on, um, you know, what are the consequences and how close and proximal are those consequences as opposed to if I take my chance in this, what's the likelihood I'm going to get caught, right? Mm -hmm. If it's really distant, right, it's very distal from, from, you know, me getting caught, then why not take the chance, Right. As opposed to, you know, like, um, and we think the same thing with reinforcements. What's the proximal thing? So what is the the lowest hanging fruit for them that they can, you know, reach, they can get reinforced for versus something that's long-term, right? Having a pro-social yeah. life is distal, right, for yeah. them, right? It's, it's like, yeah, that takes a lot of work. It's a long ways to go before I actually see any, reap any rewards from that. But right now, if I, you know, show sort of some force, I show, you know, that I'm part of the gang, I'm, I'm actually carrying out some of these things, I'm going to be showing and getting reinforcement from my other members, right? Mm -hmm. And they're part of the group. And, you know, when you think about how gangs work, um, and and again, human human nature, when you think about youths, you know, that I've worked with, they want to feel accepted. And what's more, what's more, more reinforcing than being one of the guys, Yeah. right? And I think that that overrides any of the other stuff that they know that they can get consequences for. I think when we, so it's, it's interesting talking about this because a lot of what, our, I will say our management and the police see gangs as 
is the traditional street gang. And they have the idea that everybody comes from a broken home. Uh, everybody's hanging out on street corners. They need the group for protection, for acceptance is a big one, which I think is a consistent theme through even uh, some of the gangsters that we deal with now. Um, but a lot of the guys we deal with nowadays, I'll call them like the mid to higher level, kind of in the hierarchy of things. They're, they come from like two parent homes. Their parents want them to go to school. Their parents buy them a car. They have a lot of things provided for them. They have like the, uh, the normal kind of nurturing life. And then they just want money and <laughs> to be cool. They want to be accepted, but you know, you're not coming from what's thought of as a, a broken home. Yet someone hands you a gun, says, I'll give you five grand to go shoot that guy. They're willing to do it. So I, I kind of wonder like what what would be the thinking in there or what's going on in their head? And are there just this many uh, psychopaths out there? Is that what they would be? <laughs> it sounds it sounds cliche to say this, but sex and money goes a long way, right? So mm-hmm. um, you know, and I say this because, you know, in the work that I've done with with sexual abusers. Orgasm is the biggest reinforcement for them, right? So as much as you can tell them, you know, what would be more socially appropriate and talk about how to engage that more in their life, um, orgasm is very important. When you look at people who are really relying on on that acceptance and the money that comes comes fast forward, um, I always call it sort of this, um, well, actually, it's it's called in the field, you know, behavioral economics, right? This idea that there's short-term costs and and rewards and there's there's long-term ones. And it applies here as well. What's the short-term, you know, reward I get? Money, right? Yeah. So I get five grand right now, as opposed to being a good kid and, you know, getting my allowance, working with my parents, they're supporting me. And eventually I can probably afford to buy that thing that I really, really want to get, right? Whether it's a, a car or whatever it is, that gives me a additional status and privilege, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I can get this money now. Five grand for this one, I, I can get another five grand doing another one. Yeah. Um, you know, how quickly I'm going to build that up. Right. But, you know, you think about the, the turtle and the rabbit, right? The, the, you know, we think about the, those, those stories from way back and, and you think about, you know, you can build up this over time and slowly get there and do it safely, or you can do it really rapidly. Mm-hmm. And all they see is that, again, that lowest hanging fruit, right? It's the immediate gratification that they get from the money right now that I know that if I get this now, I multiply this five times. If I do this across the month, yeah. wow, I'm going to get a lot of money, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I can be a good kid, get the support from my mom and dad, but I also get on top of the the money. I also get the acceptance, yeah. right? Now I'm one of the gang. I'm one of their, you know, one of their partners. People that trust me now, and I feel I have a belongingness that's attached to that. Um, so they get that reinforcement that they already had from from home, a, a safe home, but they get the money on top of it. So I can I can see how the thinking can be a huge role here in justifying, you know, the means to the end, mm-hmm. um, and the end comes faster uh, when you're doing that. But it. Like it, with the potential to actually kill another human being, how does one kind of distance themselves from that in their thinking? So I'm getting the money and, and whatever else I'm looking for, if it's women, uh, but, you know, end of the day, now I'm uh, going to kill somebody. And I thought that was kind of like against human nature to kill another person. Yeah, it is. <laughs> for people who may have not had... Um an abnormal sort of um, background. What you're describing is you're talking about pro-social individuals who end up, you know, in this kind of field where they're they're engaging in 
antisocial behaviors, mm. even though they had a pretty solid upbringing. Tough to say whether or not a person has a, a solid upbringing when you see that they have supportive parents or that you see that they have a, a complete family. It doesn't look like a broken home. Mm-hmm. Hard to know that until you start getting into the depths of that. Yeah. Right? So for me, I I, I would look more closely at that upbringing. Um, as much as it appears on the outside to be a really solid sort of family, um, we see this in sexual abuse situations, right? Where everything looks great on the outside. We have an outstanding, you know, father, you know, raising their kids. But what you see is the the kids raised in a pretty horrific upbringing, but no one would ever know that from the outside. And so for me, I'd, I'd probably want to dive into that a little bit more, into what was reinforced, what was valued. Um, sure, you have maybe supportive parents, but did they value money? Did they value um, status? Or did they uh, criticize that 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 kid, you know, out of the out of the four children that they have, more so than others? And yeah. are they trying to find maybe something else outside of that where they don't have to compete? So it's hard to say without kind of knowing sort of the dynamics that goes on within that family. Mm-hmm. So no street answer. <laughs> <laughs> I know everyone wants a simple answer. I wish I could. This is why I study psychology because it's such a complex thing, right? <laughs> everything, yeah, everything in our profession is just, yeah, it depends. Yes. <laughs> it all depends. <laughs> um, when uh, one of the last things here, and we're coming up on an hour and I said, I don't want to keep you around that. So, because uh, I know you got to go, but, uh, when it comes to, if you look at police versus criminals um, and say one can kill a person for protection, to protect another person, to protect themselves versus a criminal who maybe is just killing for money. Right. What's the big difference in the mind? And is there is there a lot of similarities? And then there's just like one little thing that's different or is there... You know, are we on a really fine line, um, <laughs> or is there a lot of differences? Oh well, you're asking really tough ones that are asking my opinion about these. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I this is, and I and I'm going to say this, but I'm I'm keep in mind I say this about all human beings, okay? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know I already mentioned before I study uh, you know denial, and the first thing that therapists would often say is that they're denying that we're part of the group, right? Mm. They're they're going to piss off everyone else. And I go, you know, why would we ever expect anyone to not give excuses or minimize responsibility? As human beings, we do it all the time, right? If I'm late for a, you know, a lunch date or something, I'm going to, I'm not going to say, yeah, yeah, I finished watching my soap opera and then I took my time and yeah. I knew I was going to be late, but I didn't care. I took the other car and I took a roundabout route. No one's going to say that, right? Yeah. You're going to say that, oh God, traffic sucked. And you know, like construction was just all over the place. You're going to make excuses. Mm-hmm. So why would we expect anything different? So the reason why I say that is because when you're asking about the dividing line between, you know, an officer and, a, and someone who's offended, um, you have to remember they're all part of the same group, right? Mm-hmm. They're all human beings. Um, we make decisions based on our, you know, both our upbringing, um, the things we're exposed to, what is actually a status quo for us in terms of our thinking, um, you know, the same kind of rewards and and and. Uh, costs that we we you know think about every single day and maybe not really cognizantly we don't spend hours thinking about it but it's an immediate reaction right it's like oh my god there's something really quick I can get out of this yeah that sounds great I'm gonna do it right um we make decisions even the silliest little things like do I actually enter something in this contest it'll take much of my effort oh I have to fill out a survey screw that I'm yeah, not gonna yeah. do it right <laughs> so we we are always kind of evaluating that every single day in our life um and I think the same thing happens when we're thinking about if we're putting those two, you know, against each other, decisions that we make, um, 
we use rational kind of decisions that go along with it. Mm-hmm. And it may not be rational to think about how a perpetrator might be thinking, but it's rational to, rational to them, right? Yeah. So if they're making a decision about killing someone, for example, or harming someone, um, you know, their decision about that is based on what is the most rational thing. If I don't do this, I'm going to get more shit from from the guys I hang out with. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm going to fall lower on the you know that social hierarchy that that you know that exists but is not written anywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to get probably picked on more. So I don't want to be the sort of the the victim here. I want to make sure that I'm 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 one of the you know like the, the the lions in the in that group. Right. Yeah. So there's huge decisions about that. And, you know, we think about um, an officer making a decision at the time in protection. I'd love to say that everyone thinks that immediately, but the reaction is oftentimes we're always thinking about Mm self-protection. And that's no different from whether you're an officer or if you're a person on the street who's not an officer. So I think there's there's that self-protective kind of component to it. So I think there's a lot of overlap when you think about the, the two. I think what makes it different is the rational reason behind it, right? Uh, we cannot understand why a criminal would want to commit an offense that would harm someone who potentially could be innocent mm-hmm. or could also be another drug dealer that's in a real ass, right? Yeah. But regardless, we're taking someone's life and they're choosing to do that, right? Yeah. But there's reasons why they're choosing to do that. To me, understanding the reasons behind that are incredibly invalu- mm-hmm. are valuable. Um, we don't have to rationalize or even understand why the cop does it, but we try to understand why the, the offender does it. Um, and I think once we start understanding that, not accepting it, not saying it's okay, but if we understand that, you kind of go, okay, I know where they're coming from then. Yeah. Right? You can kind of relate. Well, and even, you know, so if uh, an officer is involved in a shooting here, they have things they deal with after. So say it's PTSD. Um, so sometimes I feel like maybe they aren't rationalizing with themselves. Like they're not, they're not good with the situation. Right. So I guess it just kind of comes down to the rationality of it and how they think about it themselves. Well, you know, you think about with an officer, I mean, you know, there's, there's this kind of um, model that we all try to follow, right? And you choose a certain profession and you're, you're, you know, you think about with a, with an officer, they're thinking I'm protecting the public Mm -hmm. and yet I've harmed one person. Mm -hmm. Right. And that one person you know, could have um, done harm to someone else, or maybe they couldn't have, and it was an accident. Um, there's, there's all these kind of things that, that run through people's mind, and it, it's a mismatch. It's a mismatch between who I model after yeah. and, then, and yeah. then this person who's done this thing, right? And I think one thing we always have to try to remember, and it doesn't resolve the PTSD, um, but it's something that people have to come to, come to terms with, is to try to reprocess it enough so that they can think in terms of, when I made that decision, that was a behavior. It doesn't mean that's who I am. Right? Yeah, okay. And once you start reconciling that and reconciling it by actually facing it, because that's where treatment for PTSD really kicks in, is, is trying to reprocess it and, and um, go through the whole cycle again. Because if you don't do that, then you're for- claiming that if you forget it and I yeah. don't think about it, then everything's going to be fine. But, but it, it rears its ugly back. head. Yeah, yes, exactly. It comes back. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, kind of coming up, to end of the time, uh, is there anything you think we didn't cover or you want to kind of make sure we covered? Mm. <laughs> I think we covered a lot of that. I think we, I apologize for going all over the place. I just no, feel like... <laughs> that would be my fault if we're going all over the place. But uh, there's just so much to this and um, we could probably have you in here for a few more hours. Uh, is there anywhere uh, people can follow your work or keep track of 
your opinions? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you can you can Google find me as well. Um, but I do have a website. So if they want to take a look at any of the, the work that I've done or any of the papers that I have, uh, they can email me or they can look at the website. And uh, if it's not on there fully accessible, then you can just email me and send it to them. Okay. okay. Uh, how would they access your website? Like through the McEwen? Through McEwen, yeah. Through McEwen, okay. This is one I was looking at. So <laughs> I will, um, I'll throw a link up in when we get this episode up so people can follow there. And any books or anything on the horizon? Oh, I hate writing books. I, I wrote the one and I don't think I'll do it again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do like writing review papers. I find that that's more a bite-sized kind of um, uh, thing to kind of grasp onto. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I do have a few of those. If people are interested in looking at intimate partner sexual violence or, um, you know, understanding risk assessment maybe for youth. I, I've, I've written a few papers recently on those. Um, but most of my my work is, and I do have a book, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> tout it here, but it is focused on um, risk management of sexual abusers in the community. So if, if people are wanting to know a little bit more about that, that's certainly, um, I do have a component that talks about policing as well, just to make sure that, you know, like we start using things like risk need responsivity principles mm -hmm. um, in policing as well as we use it in, in corrections. Okay. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thanks for coming in. Great. Thanks yeah. for having me. It was fun. Okay. <laughs>